Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. You alone are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. It's good to be with you today, and we are in our third week, the third Sunday, of a very special short sermon series, and we're looking at the key values and commitments of our young church, uh, things that we're invited into together here at St. Thomas. Um, St. Thomas, our goal is to be a vibrant, disciple-making liturgical church uh, that's all about the gospel, and today's topic is central to that vision. Central to that identity of a disciple-making church is what is a disciple? What's it mean to be one who follows? And in just three short words, I would say, disciples follow Jesus. That's what we mean by that. Um, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. The preacher there says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's the idea that fixing our eyes on Jesus, following Jesus um, as his people, uh, that's our true north here at St. Thomas where we believe that the goal of the spiritual life uh, for each of us, and this is by the sheer uh, grace of God and work of the Holy Spirit that we uh, cooperate with, is to be made like Jesus. Romans chapter 8, Paul writes this, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, Get this, to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those who he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Um, I think when I was first exploring Romans 8 as a college student, um, I got lost in the arguments about predestination and all those kind of reform topics. Um, Those are good. It's good to have those conversations But we almost miss the the gold right in the middle of that passage that we are going to be made like Jesus, conformed to the image of his son as God works all things together uh, for our good. Um, One of the most famous Anglican ministers of the last century was a man named John Stott. Maybe you've heard of John Stott. He served at All Souls um, in London for decades. He was actually a, a lifelong bachelor Um, and wrote incredible uh, studies of the Bible and theology. Um, His sermons are wonderful to listen to. And if you've ever listened to John Stott, they're they're very British. Um, They are impeccably logical and biblical and winsome and very calm. (laughs) He just kind of walks through it very matter-of-factly with his uh, British accent. But uh, he wrote a book shortly before he died. And his goal was to kind of collect his thoughts after a lifetime of ministry, um, of following Jesus. It's meant for Christians. It's meant for pastors, church leaders. And here's what he said. He says, I want to share with you where my mind has come to rest as I approach the end of my pilgrimage on earth. And it is. God wants his people to become like Christ. Christ Christ-likeness 
is the will of God for the people of God. Uh, Similarly, Dallas Willard, who uh, if you hang around with me long enough, you'll hear about Dallas Willard. He was a philosophy professor at USC, University of Southern California. Um, He wrote a lot in the 80s and 90s that I think is still bearing a lot of fruit today. Um, I often say if you look at the most popular writers right now on the spiritual life, um, they're all just ripping off Dallas Willard in wonderful ways, Um, continuing his legacy of let's try to recover discipleship and apprenticeship in the church. Um, Here's what Dallas once said, the greatest challenge the church faces is to be authentic disciples of Jesus. And by that, I mean they're learning from him how to live their life as he would live their life if he were they. So that means whatever I am, whoever I am, I take him into my whole life as my Lord. Lord means that he's my teacher. Another way of putting this is to say that our greatest challenge um, is to recover Jesus, the teacher. You know, if you don't have a teacher, you can't have a disciple. Um, Dallas was a a lifelong Southern Baptist um, who was convinced um, that, that there was a, a pendulum had swung in the church where we stopped listening to Jesus as teacher. We stopped trying to learn from him, and we were only interested in eternal life. Um, he actually called uh, these type of Christians vampire Christians. He says, you're just in it for the blood. <laughs> you're not in it to be taught. And so as we think about this uh, value and commitment to the idea of discipleship, we summarize it this way, follow following the great commandment and the great commission uh, in line with the great tradition of the church. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Um, and I do want to unpack that because it uses some, some church jargon. Uh, there's some jargon in this language, but it packs so much um, into one little sentence of what we're trying to do and what we think um, all this is about. So first, uh, the great commandment. Uh, the great commandment. Last week, we talked about uh, the incredible reality that the relationship we have with God is actually that we have been brought into a relationship uh, that already exists with and within the living triune God. Pope John Paul II, God has revealed his innermost secret. God himself is an eternal exchange of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and he has destined us to share in that exchange. We talked about how the Christian life is far more than just information transfer. But it rests on what we love um, and how Christian worship even is designed to shape and reshape, form and reform our desires and what we love. Love is central to this task. And so it's not surprising to see that Jesus places a huge emphasis on what we love, what we desire. Um, Every week we actually start our service, one of the first things we do Um, is one of the clergy will read from Matthew 22. It's called the summary of the law. Um, That is the great commandment. Um, So when we say great commandment, that's what we mean, the summary of the law. Um, The Anglican church has found it so important that we use it in every service. Right at the front. (laughs) This is the call of God on our lives. Um, Every week we we use it. Um, Scott McKnight, who's a, a New Testament scholar, actually says you could call it the great commandment. You could even call it the Jesus creed. It's that central, that formative for who Jesus is and what he calls us to do. Uh, Matthew 22 and his parallels 
um, involve a conversation. Uh, Jesus is approached by some folks, and they say, hey, what is the greatest law? It's a good question. Like, how would you summarize the entire Old Testament? What is uh, the greatest of the laws? Um, and by the way, that was not an unusual question. Um, this was a common question that would be asked of rabbis, uh, partly to categorize them. <laughs> you know, hey, the, what, the way you answered this question revealed kind of what group you were in uh, for the rabbis. Were you going to focus on this or focus on that? And what Jesus does is remarkable in the way he draws together uh, two strands. Um, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And those listening were like, great, we know right where you stand. You're in this camp, that loving God is what's the most important. And then he goes, oh, and by the way, the second is like this. I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> like We told you one. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus draws together the best of those strands as they try to put him in a box. And he goes, no, we love God vertically and we love our neighbor horizontally. And these are connected. They're not separate at all. And so that's why we start with this every week, the great commandment. And it means that we see this as central. Loving God, loving our neighbors. Um, similarly, so often that the idea of our neighbors uh, is not just those we don't know, but those we do know. And so Jesus will say frequently, love one another. Uh, by this, they will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. Um, and I think that's good for a church to hear and to ponder. Because sometimes it's easier to love those we don't know than those we do. Sometimes it's easier to love the idea of our neighbors um, than the person who bugs us next door <laughs> um, or in the next pew or what may have you. The Lord puts us in communities uh, to help conform us to the image of Jesus. It's iron sharpening iron, even as we find um, ways that we are called to really lean into this command uh, to love one another. So that's the great commandment. We follow the great commandment. And we follow the Great Commission. So again, kind of a churchy jargon word. Um, the Great Commission just refers to Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20, what Deacon Text read for us this morning. Um, and it, it's, again, important to kind of get the sense and get the scene of what's happening. Um, in Matthew 28, we're at the end of Matthew's gospel, and we're past, finally, uh, Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection. And so now Matthew's gospel has this, this moment where Jesus is going to give his disciples, uh, okay, here's your marching orders now that we're on the other side of that. Because the death and resurrection of Jesus um, was, changed everything. It's this momentous event where there's truly a before and after. And so Jesus is saying, now that all this has happened for you, for your salvation, now that you see how God has summed up all of his promises in me, how I have loved you even to the end. Here's what you're called to do. So Matthew 16 uh, through 20, uh, Matthew 28, 16 through 20, um, here's what Matthew writes. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, uh, but some doubted. It's actually a nice scene, isn't it? 
It's one of the first times we see um, not they listened to him or they followed him or no, they, they worshiped him. Um, you only do that of one who is divine <laughs> if you're a good uh, first century Jewish person. Uh, but I love the little caveat. Some doubt it. Like <laughs> some folks are worshiped like, man, this is the son of God. And others are like, I don't even know if we should be doing this right now. Like, what is happening? And I, I imagine every time when we gather, I actually think of this scene, because I think when we gather, um, some worship and some doubt. Um, and, and probably even within ourselves, there's times where we worship and we doubt. That's why actually we're called St. Thomas, um, this person who worships and doubts and brings all of that. And Jesus invites all of that. And it says in Matthew, Jesus came to them, and he didn't say, stop doubting. He says, friends, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. When Jesus tells them, uh, he gives this, this is his great commission. These are the marching orders uh, for the church. And it's so easy to even just focus on one part of this. Um, but Jesus is saying so much in this little passage, uh, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And I am with you even to the end of the age. Um, so uh, first, this idea of what does it mean to teach them all that I have commanded you? I mean, if you're his disciples and you're going, all right, well, what were the main things he taught us that we're supposed to teach others? Um, I don't think it's hypothetical. I mean, like if you look at Matthew, Matthew actually structures his entire gospel um, as these five discourses that happen on mountains, just like Moses giving the, the five books of the Old Testament, the law. This is the teaching of Jesus, and especially his Sermon on the Mount is in Matthew. This extended teaching on the kingdom of God. Um, I, I think of the Upper Room Discourse, John 13 through 17. These huge chapters where Jesus is uh, telling his disciples what the kingdom is like um, and giving them what they're supposed to do. Um, I also think of this summary of the law. I mean, if you want to think about what has Jesus taught his disciples... Well, where has he had extended teaching, and where has he had that short, <laughs> never forget this one-liners? And that's supposed to stick with them. They're supposed to pass that on um, as they go. Um, and I think a lot, of, a lot of churches do that and do that well. Um, he tells us that we should be baptizing, um, not just like John baptized for repentance, but baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We see the, the teaching of the Trinity even emerging there. Um, but it's interesting. And I, I don't know how, how you think about baptism. That's a whole other topic and sermon. Um, but one of the things we know is that baptism is welcoming folks into a community. And so when he's telling them to go out and baptize, he's saying, hey, go out and even form these communities that you're welcoming people into um, by God's grace. And then some folks will look at this and really focus on the nations part. All right, we're supposed to go out and reach the nations. Um, and that's awesome. Like we, part of the mission of God is to reach uh, the nations. 
God has a heart for the beautiful diversity of the nations, and he really has a heart for those who have not yet heard this good news. Um, and sometimes we are called uh, to fulfill this with a passport. Um, we get on a plane, we get on a boat, we go, and we make disciples of the nations. But again, sometimes it's, no, we go next door. Um, and both of those are good, and both of those are valuable, and both of those are in view um, with the Great Commission. It's not an either or. In fact, the very phrase here, go, therefore, um, we've got a few English professors here. Um, this is not actually a command if you look at it in Greek. Uh, it's a participle. And really, a way you could translate it is as you go. See the difference there? One is directional, go. And it, good, that's well and good to go. Um, but the other is as you go. Like as you're living your life, <laughs> as you're doing your day-to-day work that God has given you to do, how are you um, making disciples, baptizing them, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you? Um, the way I think about this, some of you know that I grew up playing soccer. I really, um, any soccer fans here? Okay, a couple, a couple. Uh, well, one of the things you learn early on in soccer is that uh, the most ineffective way to dribble a soccer ball is to look at the soccer ball. It's really natural. You've got it at your feet. It's a little bit awkward. Uh, but if you look at the ball, what's going to happen? Yeah, someone's going to take it right away. Um, or you're going to trip or you're going to fall. And so one of the earliest skills that you try to develop is uh, where you pick your head up. You don't focus on the ball. You look around. That way you can actually see what's happening. Um, I remember when I was a kid, probably eight years old, uh, my dad was our soccer coach, and we had a drill for this. Um, he got a bunch of uh, plastic visors, and he put them on our necks upside down. And so it made this little like cone of shame um, <laughs> where we could not look down and see the ball. And see, like, we like scrimmage like this. Like, we played like whole games because um, he was like, I could spend a lot of time just telling you over and over, don't look at the ball, or help you not look at the ball. <laughs> Um, and then we learned. We would learn to actually look around, see our teammates pass, read the game, all these things. Um, that's for me when I think about this as you go. It's almost the idea of are you living your life with your head up? Or are you just focused on your own ball and your own task? Jesus says, pick your head up. Look around. See what he has given you to do. See the people he brings into your path. Uh, see those interruptions um, that he intends and that he brings your way. Are you living your life uh, with your head up? As you go, uh, make these disciples. Um, and the other thing I think is worth noting here, just before we move to the next part, two things. One is this is not a fool's errand. Jesus is really clear. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Uh, that's what this command is rooted on. It starts with that foundation that if all authority has been given uh, to Jesus, then we go and do this. And the other thing he, he bookends it with, and I will be with you. Um, we're not just told to go out on our own and, and, and wander through the woods and wander on the paths and try to figure out what to do next. Jesus says, hey, we're doing this together. Um, you're not on your own. 
I am with you even to the end of the age. He sends his Holy Spirit to indwell and empower us. And um, there was a movement probably, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago where everyone got really into this term called missional. Um, and I like it. I got into it too. I get it. Um, but it was like, we go out and we do this mission. Um, and then a lot of folks got really worn out by that as well. And I think the folks that got really worn out didn't read all of this passage. If you go out in your own strength to change and save the world, um, you're going to be worn out because you're not Jesus. You're going to be lonely. You're going to be frustrated. Your work's going to seem unending and impossible, but we're called to go out uh, and realize that Jesus is with us, that he empowers the work, that it's about him, uh, not us. That's in the Great Commission. And so we follow the Great Commandment and the Great Commission, these two kind of big chunks and we say that we do it, we qualify it in line with the great tradition. The great tradition. By that we mean, um, how have people lived and worshipped and followed Jesus for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years? In very different times, in very different places, um, what, what has God done in and through his church? And how do we line up in continuity with that? Um, instead of either being ignorant of it or being just naively <laughs> immature about it. Um, but when I think about the idea of the great tradition, um, I think about a relay race. Uh, we're receiving a baton, and we're passing that baton on. Um, and this, uh, let me just be clear, this is not nostalgia. It's not just a preference for the past. It's actually wisdom that we would wonder, how would people follow Jesus? How has this worked? How could we do that and then pass it on? It doesn't mean that, um, that, that the tradition is perfect. We know that there's been ways where the church has missed it in terrible ways. We're honest with that. But it's this growing thing where God is working in and through the church. Um, one church historian uh, once said that tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. I think when some hear that we do this in line with the great tradition, they're like, man, that sounds stuffy and dead and boring. And I get it, because traditionalism uh, is the dead faith of the living. But tradition is the living faith of the dead. We're excited about how God has worked in and through them. We want to learn from that and then wisely uh, follow it. We want to follow the great commandment and the great tradition, uh, great Commission in line with the great tradition. We understand that distinction as we seek to follow the Lord. Um, because we do know that traditionalism, um, it's its own trap. We, we can get overly preoccupied with this part, the tradition, um, in a way that is its own legalistic trap and snare. Um, I actually see this sometimes. If you're like me, I didn't grow up in the Anglican church, in a liturgical church. And so I can get really excited about these new things I've found. Um, and occasionally I see folks just, the pendulum just keeps swinging. And they get so focused on every little minute uh, piece of what they didn't grow up with. Um, well, that's not the point. All of these are designed uh, to help us uh, with the great commandment, to love God and love our neighbor, to help us with the great commission. 
um, to make disciples and teach them to obey all that Jesus has commanded us. So I just want to kind of set that. We're trying to go at that middle way between these things. Um, and by the way, if you actually read through the New Testament, you'll see this idea over and over again that there is this baton being received and passed on. Um, and so, for example, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount uh, says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Um, he, he's, he's, hey, here's all that's gone before me. I'm receiving it. I'm actually fulfilling that. It was all about me anyway. So there's that process happening here. Uh, St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 um, actually gave this beautiful but challenging command to the Corinthian church, follow me as I follow Christ. Um, There's this link. There's this relay race going on. Um, And isn't that just so much more beautiful than how folks will talk and think about leadership today? Leadership in the sense that we're these important people, so you should do what we say. No, he's like, hey, I'm going to follow Jesus, and then I want you to follow me as I follow Jesus. Um, That's actually a challenge for those in leadership to go, am I following Jesus in a way that if folks did what I'm doing, it would lead them to follow Jesus as well? Uh, But you see that kind of a pattern. Later in 1 Corinthians, Corinthians, um, we heard what what Charles read for us. We get this idea that very early in the life of the church, um, a consensus had already emerged regarding how the death and resurrection of Jesus for us and for our salvation fulfilled all of the promises of God. And we get this sense that even then they're grabbing that baton and passing it on. Listen to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15. I would remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. I handed you this baton. And which you stand and by which you are being saved. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. He's wisely passing on what we would call the apostolic uh, tradition. And in fact, towards the end of the New Testament, this is so well established that Jude, which is this little short epistle. Like if you're ever going like, I want to read a book of the Bible before I go to sleep, pick Jude. (laughs) You'll feel really, you just check it off. Um, But Jude writes this, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. You received something. Um, And so when we think about the great commandment, we think about the great commission, we do this in line with what we've received, the great tradition. Um, And we're aware, again, that this is not a perfect chain, but we see the wisdom and work of God through his church and seek to pass that on. Um, and to live that out in our own day. Discipleship is following Jesus. Discipleship is following the great commandment and commission uh, in line with the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, the great tradition, and the sense of how God's people have wisely, faithfully followed and lived and worshiped. Friends, God meets us where we are, but he doesn't leave us where we are. He's making us like his son. As we heard in Romans, he freely calls us and justifies us. He adopts us as his sons and daughters. And then through the work of the Holy Spirit, he is at work refining us and shaping us and molding us during our lives 
And finally, in the age to come, he will glorify us, making us like his son. God wants to make us like Jesus forever. And we are called to cooperate in that process by following. Um, God, by the way, if you read the scriptures, he's, he's not opposed to effort in the spiritual life. And I think some of us who grew up in very Protestant traditions were like, man, we should never try to do anything. Well, that's not what you read. <laughs> and that, that's actually why sometimes we really struggle with parts of Paul, like work out your own salvation by fear and trembling. We're like, whoa, 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 what's happening there? Um, no, God is not opposed to effort, uh, but he lets us know he's opposed to earning. Our effort doesn't earn salvation. Our effort doesn't earn our righteousness. No, Jesus has procured all of that for us, and then we're freed up to walk in obedience, empowered and indwelled by the Holy Spirit. That's what we mean when we talk about discipleship, this process of following Jesus. Jesus invites us to come, be his disciples, his apprentices, learn from him what it means to live and work. We follow him, his person. We're captivated by Jesus. We're captivated by his ways um, and his way, the way of salvation, the kingdom that he showed. And this is a relational, ongoing process available to everyone. And don't miss this. Um, we're, we're almost done this morning. But in the ancient world, um, this idea of discipleship and apprenticeship was very common. Um, rabbis um, would have these disciples, these apprentices. Um, and those who were students would take on the yoke of their rabbi, and they would learn from them, um, and they would learn everything they could. They would follow them around. Uh, but here's the thing. Rabbis at the time uh, would only accept um, the best and the brightest who came to them uh, for instruction. Um, I thought that some of y'all know that yesterday my son Noah had an audition at the UGA School of Music. Um, and I was like, okay, <laughs> they're going to accept like four trombone students. There's like five today and there's like six of these Saturdays. What are they looking for? <laughs> uh, well, they're looking for, in many ways, the best and the brightest. But he's also been told that this particular trombone professor is looking for teachability. Um, as you come, can, can you learn? Can you adapt? Can you grow? But rabbis would only accept those who came to them, but Jesus will turn that on its head by accepting everyone as his student, by even seeking them out and calling them to himself. He doesn't wait to be found. He seeks us. He invites us into this lifelong process of becoming like him. He invites us to be part of his mission, of his story, in fact, he invites us to let our own personal lives and stories become part of what he is doing in the world and thereby find true meaning and true purpose and true significance. Jesus puts it this way, take up your cross and follow me. He's clear. This is going to be difficult. There will be a cost to it. But that cost, that difficulty is far less than the cost of trying to do things in our own way and in our own strength, the way we've always done it. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.